0: Welcome back to the Ten Blocks Podcast. This is Brian Anderson, the editor of City Journal. Joining me on today's show is Fred Siegel. Fred was editor of City Journal during its creation years 30 years ago, and he has remained one of our most valued contributors. He's been a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute for many years. In his academic career, among other appointments, Fred has taught history and humanities at the Cooper Union, and since his retirement has he's been a scholar in residence at St. Francis College in Brooklyn. Fred Siegel is the author of a number of important books, including one of the great books ever written on the American city, The Future Once Happened Here, New York, D.C., L.A., and The Fate of America's Big Cities, a book that has been a big influence on us at City Journal in the way we think about the trajectory of recent American history. The Prince of the City, Giuliani, New York, and the Genius of American Life was uh, another book. Uh, That one looked at the remarkable turnaround in New York under the Giuliani mayoralty. In 2014 appeared The Revolt Against the Masses, How Liberalism Has Undermined the Middle Class. But his latest book, and the reason he's joining us today, is called The Crisis of Liberalism, Prelude to Trump. It's published by Telos Press And you can find it on their website, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. So welcome, Fred. Thank you. Fred, your book is a history in many ways of our current moment, the culmination of trends that emerged in full force during the long 1960s, as you call them, uh, but that in fact originated much earlier. The first section of your book is on the intellectual origins of modern American liberalism. And one of the figures profiled is H.G. Wells. Now, people mostly remember Wells these days as the author of science fiction classics, War of the Worlds, The Invisible Man, and so on. But he was, for a time during the early decades of the 20th century, a kind of astonishingly influential figure, a futurist public intellectual, meeting presidents and prime ministers, and basically having his every pronouncement on politics and society taken seriously why do you see wells as the godfather of liberalism as your chapter calls him well <clears throat>
1: wells, wells wants uh, society to be ruled by the new samurai as he calls them at one point he calls them many different names but he wants what he wants is an aristocracy for america and he wants he wants to see a british aristocracy revived not not the that House of Lords, the dim-witted uh, uh, House of Lords of elderly gentlemen in decline, but a, but a new aristocracy for England and, and an aristocracy for America. He he, he writes. He he has, he's a he's a kind of by bi- uh, uh, Atlantic guy. He he he's, he's at home in America as he as he is in England. And if, in fact, at one point, he th- had thought about relocating to uh, to America. But everything he writes uh, in in England is published here, and sometimes he publishes things that are first uh, first appear in, in the American press. He's a great student of nineteenth century American utopian socialism, not Marxian socialism. He has no use for Marx, no use for the Bolsheviks, but utopian socialism, the, the kind that 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 are associated uh, with. Experiments in communal living. I, I did a piece, I did an article, for, a long article for City Journal, which appears in, in, in this collection, in which I talk about that, about his, his admiration for the, the Oneida, Oneida community, for instance. Uh, best known known now for place, but once upon known for
0: their communal experiment. Um, but, you know, in Wells's case, Wells, um, you say wanted to establish a kind of uh, uh, aristocracy, a new samurai class in the United States. Uh, but this was, would not be an aristocracy based on hereditary basis, right?
1: No, it would be an aristocracy of merit. It, so he, he, he saw the emerging class of, of, of scientists as people who were de- destined to rule in the long run. Uh, experts. Well, we, we, we have a touch of that today when, when, you know, when Joe Biden says, whatever the experts tell him, he'll do. Th-
0: that's the kind of thing we're talking about. So the connection in the case of Wells is with today's liberalism is really a, a kind of uh, a contempt for democracy, you might even call it, or?
1: No, it's, he's
0: hostile to democracy. Right.
1: He's hostile to democracy uh but but Wells is not alone. All the founding fathers, so to speak, of modern American uh, liberalism have this hope uh, herbert crowley, the the fellow who creates the
0: new republic right. people don't really remember or read crowley, but he too was was very influential in the early part of the century, right?
1: Yes, very Crowley more than any other individual creates modern liberalism, and, and Crowley's objection to to America. Is it's not French enough? Cro- Crowley's roots are intellectual roots. There's a, a long story. I won't, I won't, I won't bore you with. His intellectual roots are are in, in French in, in Auguste Comte. I'm, I'm mispronouncing the name. I'm sure as I mispronounce all French names, even when I lived in France. <laughs> um, the rule of experts. That's where he places his hopes. Uh, Crowley places his hopes. Crowley at one point is a great admirer of Mussolini. He thinks Mussolini is, is bringing that to Italy, and he's, revive, he's reviving it. No, he, he changes his mind. He's not a fascist, but he's, an, but he's most definitely an admirer of, 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 of Mussolini. Uh, Randolph Bourne, who uh, wrote for the New Republic, uh, very thoughtful. Uh, also a, a, an admirer of, of, of French neo-fascist trends. He, he died before fascism comes full-born. Another person who, who who fits in this mold is literary, literary critic and wit H. L. Mencken. I, I think Mencken might still be known today. Am, am I, is that fair to say, Brian?
0: Yes, I think Mencken certainly um, um, is is better known these days and still read uh, compared with Crowley, You know, who's who's truly become more of a historical figure. People who have studied the the early 20th century political history of the United States know of Crowley, uh, but but Mencken, yeah, Mencken's some of his books still remain in print. For example,
1: but you know when 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 I was an undergraduate, you know several centuries ago, uh, in the 1960s, uh, three different new editions of Ho- Herbert Crowley's The Promise of American Life came out the same year, 1966. Wow. It was it was a Crowley revival in America. Uh, which c- coincided with the 1960s and one of the elements of the 1960s not much discussed uh, was this desi- was this desire to create a new elite you know so, there was so much happening in the 1960s and early 70s so much violence uh, so, so many manifestos of one sort or another uh, that, that that we we sometimes uh, miss that
0: well it's uh, so that would be the connection with these these earlier figures like uh, Wells and Crawley or Orborn, um, and so maybe you know maybe let's move forward to that area because you do uh, write a lot about the '60s and the crisis of liberalism, um, and in particular, uh, one figure that features in a number of chapters is John Lindsay, who was the mayor of New York City from 1966 through '73. Uh, he he you know loomed large in the history of New York in that period. Uh, he's he, he is a major figure in your book why do you see lindsay as such an important figure and what do you mean by uh, you talk about this in the context of of lindsay's merit the emergence of a top bottom coalition as characterizing modern liberalism
1: well that that was, is still with us i mean that that there was a, a tremendous article uh, this past week in tablet magazine about warren buffett and other billionaires who are supporting indirectly Black Lives Matter through a, an organization called the Tides Foundation, and what what we've what we've seen in the last two three well, let's say maybe five years is the emergence of an alliance between the upper middle class, the, the very wealthy, and Black Lives Matter, um, and it's 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 readily, it's redolent in the '60s, and what was first seen in John Lindsay's New York. John Lindsay wins re-election by sweeping the black vote and and carrying the vote of well-to-do uh, New Yorkers and and intellectuals and thinkers. Lindsay's not much known today. I mention his name, people look at me blankly. But in his time he was he was a, a giant figure. He was considered on a par with Bobby Kennedy as as you know uh, as forging the new the, the new politics. Lindsay had the unfortunate situation of of facing the collapse of the New York economy. In his last term in office, the city lost 600,000 jobs. That's not a, 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 a misstatement. It's literal. 600,000 jobs disappeared, and New York w- went into a decline. that did, It didn't really recover until uh, the, the Rudy Giuliani years, uh, and, and that's uh, 25 years later. And Lindsay was a very handsome guy, very appealing. He spoke well. Uh, he was sensitive, but he was a classic. He was a classic liberal in, in that intentions counted for more than outcomes, and the trade-offs that we always have to make in order for, order to make pol- policy work uh, were alien to him. He didn't think in terms of trade-offs. He he was the primary author of the Kerner Commission report on the riots in America. And he, he concluded that the riots were prim- primarily a function of racism.
0: If that sounds familiar, it should. This was in the 60s, of course, the riots of that era, which does sound familiar to us these days because we're, we're going through a kind of similar experience in 2020 with American cities, so really over the last five or six years.
1: Yes, the the, the Lindsay em- emphasis on uh, racism is the source of all of the problems in African Ameri- among African Americans. It stays with us. It fades somewhat in the 1990s, but it comes back. It comes back. It's come back in the last dozen years or so, and it's no more intelligent now than it was then. Moynihan, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, who I write about in two chapters of the book, saw that that the collapse of the black family uh, was the was the key. The problems of the African American community.
0: This but, was his famous 1965 report, right on the plight of the black family, which we've written about a lot in in City Journal, warning about the rising out of wedlock birth rates among African Americans, which were far lower than they are today, but seeing these as uh, you know a big problem looming. Moynihan's uh, report
1: also foretells the the kind of cancel culture we have now. There was an attempt to destroy Moynihan. Literally, he he almost, he he had uh, had close to a nervous breakdown. He was denounced as a fascist, a racist. It was nothing of the sort. He had considerable sympathy for African-Americans, and he did not, he did not go after uh, African-American culture. He he was very respectful. He'd grown up in a single, as a, a, a son of a single parent in Brooklyn, First Manhattan and then Brooklyn, and and uh, he knew what the he knew what the the, the struggles were of, of being a single parent, of, of being raised in a single parent, uh, a family. But but, Moy, but Moynihan Moynihan was, was swatted and 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 belittled, and the Moynihan report, although it, it eventually re, uh, received intellectual acclaim thirty years later, the consequences were minimal. What happened was. Two things, it, uh, the growth of, of the Great Society, which, which created a permanent uh, welfare income uh, for the black underclass, and black, the black power movement,
0: which... Um, that the problem is really, uh, all the social problems come back to kind of white supremacy or structural racism or...
1: In contemporary language, yes. These, these are very, these, these are half century old arguments. They, they that, that they're still resonant is what's is what's stunning, because as 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 we we deal with them today, uh, there's very little intellectual heft to this. The books that have come out, uh, white white fragility, uh, a collection of uh, secondhand anecdotes, uh, but the kind of s- statistical horror statistical uh, analysis that Moynihan did, there's there's very little of that today among, among people who are influential on in the Democratic
0: Party mm-hmm. in in what you know it, it's it's striking that Moynihan really embodied the crisis of liberalism that you describe in his own life and thought right yes uh, he was he was a lifelong Democrat he was very deeply hurt by the accusations uh, that he was a racist after his report came out um, and it perhaps influenced the way he he addressed Issues of poverty and culture and, and race later in his uh, career, right?
1: Yes, yes. He, he he played around with the idea of he went to work for Nixon in, a, in an odd an odd alliance. Uh, he went to work for Nixon and he started talking about a guaranteed national income. Um, it didn't fly. The the, the the economics didn't fly, and he, it was eventually shot down. It never it never really took off. But one hand was, was a presence on, on, on this, this, the intellectual scene. He was a senator who, the joke was, had read more books, excuse me, had written more books than most other senators had read. He, he, wrote, he wrote books on a variety of subjects intelligence. He wanted to abolish the CIA. Yeah. Uh, long before the current attempt, uh, or attempt five years ago, by the CIA and the FBI to take uh, Trump down in a coup. He wanted he wanted to bring the the CIA to an end. He thought they were they were incompetent.
0: Right. Now uh, another theme in your book, uh, and it's related to some of what you were just talking about uh, with with Moynihan, is what you've called, I think you coined this phrase, the riot ideology. Yes. And again, this was a phenomenon that was born in the '60s, but but is certainly resurging again today, with cities again facing outbreaks Outbro- of violent protests and, and looting, um, which occurred after the uh, horrible death of, of uh, George Floyd in police custody in Minneapolis uh, in you know, the early part of the summer. Could you describe what you mean by that phrase, the riot ideology, and what might be done to counter it? Well, what the riot ideology said was
1: that rioting was a legitimate bargaining chip. That uh, people who were not being given their due uh, were right to to go into the streets, uh, right to riot, right to loot. And that the upshot would be that they would be uh, rewarded, so to speak, uh, rewarded by funds from Washington. Uh, and And it, it, that story hasn't changed. I mean, uh, essentially, uh, there, there are many Democratic governors in, in states that are now locked down, New York. New Jersey, California, Illinois, uh, that that are, are are counting on a Biden presidency uh, to bail them out. House Speaker Pelosi is, had had a bill that where about six hundred billion dollars would have been sent to uh, f- failing cities. What what's different this time is, is that is that the ethnic populations of the cities which, which stood firm. Against the riots in the 1960s and 70s, that population is no longer there. It's been replaced by an immigrant population, which is not politically engaged. The upshot is is that the opposition the, the opposition to uh, defunding the police uh, doesn't have the, the heft the heft it once once would have had. Another irony here is that if you look at the group in Minneapolis. Most opposed to defunding the police, it's African Americans, because they're they're most most undermined by the rise in crime.
0: Yeah, it's it's striking, and it certainly we do see this uh, idea that rioting is a legitimate response to dissatisfaction with policing or to inequality. Or there's just been a wave after wave of that this year. Um, you know, the top bottom politics, which you've described in this book, uh, also include a Republican version, as well as the, the progressive kind. You you argue that this fed the rise of a populist politics in the country, and certainly the rise of Donald Trump, with a presidential election looming. How do you see the future of that kind of populism in American politics, whatever the outcome of this election is? Brian,
1: it's hard to say since uh, the people I know who, who are uh, supportive of Trump uh, have gone quiet. Uh, they've gone silent, they, they, they know that they'll be mocked, reviled if they voice uh, openly voice their support for Trump. So So I, I, I just I, I, I don't know. I feel, I, I'm, I'm personally at sea. My, my suspicion is, that on election day, Trump will win at the ballot box by a reasonable margin. But having watched this happen in California, I, 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 I see how it works now. The Democrats will be given a target for the number of votes that need, need to be attained or manufactured in the coming weeks. And depending on how much time they'll get, and this will, this will be something that will finally be adjudicated in the courts, um they'll they'll narrowly win and that will put us in a constitutional crisis uh, that's that's my, that's what i anticipate I, I i may be completely
0: wrong well we'll see soon enough it it is certainly going to be a tumultuous period now in fact you you describe america as descending into a kind of soft civil war in this book uh, and uh, you you do look at the political landscape right now and see something very close to that. You know, another another theme, though, of this book, and, and I'd like you to talk a little bit about this, is just the contribution of uh, the university world to uh, the developments that that you detail in the book. You know, you've been an academic for, for a long time, um, many years as a teacher. What's your take on what's going on in the university today with this Speech suppression and the, you know, the woke students. How much is that contributing to this this uh, soft civil war climate that we're we're experiencing in national politics? It's
1: a, it's an it's an expression of, of the soft civil war. Um, the universities are, have done everything they can to sabotage themselves. Uh, they're, they're, they, when I when I talk with, uh, it's hard to talk in groups at this point because of the because of COVID. People um, now, I'm talking about older people, my age, uh, grandparents, parents. Uh, they've lost all uh, respect for the universities. There's no pretense. If they they want their they want their children to get or grandchildren to get uh, a, a fine degree f- from a fine college, but not because they, they think that they're, they're learning anything of substance, but because they think it'll be a, a ticket into the upper middle class. So I, I think I think academia is in a, in a very bad place. But l- speaking of academia, l- let me l- let me sp- speak to the, the one academic uh, who probably had more influence on this than anyone else, and, and I'm not referring to Herbert Marcuse. I'm referring to Richard Hofstadter.
0: Mm-hmm. And you have an excellent chapter in this book on Hofstadter's uh, legacy. Yes, H-
1: Hofstadter was a, 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 a brilliant historian. Uh, Although he didn't do any work in the archives, he was—he—he he really uh, took secondary works and, and molded them into imaginative interpretations. Uh, he he wrote an essay in nineteen seventy excuse me sixty four called the paranoid style, and it came out just at the time Goldwater was was collapsing, and it it it, it seemed like a revelation. The argument was that the, the reason Goldwater failed so badly in nineteen sixty four. Uh, giving Johnson a landslide and setting into motion the things we just talked about, like the Great Society and Black Power, the reason for this was that that the people on the right imagined uh, uh, enemies. Uh, they they conjured they conjured up threats that didn't really exist. This this was the paranoid style. But the the essay, the paranoid style, is widely quoted today. I mean, if if you if you if someone doubts me. Go to Google. Write in Hofstadter the paranoid style, and you'll see hundreds of entries will come up. But the paranoid style is no longer just on the right. It, it's it's alive and well on the left. Part of what we call uh, woke liberal liberalism, if, if, if liberalism it be. I don't I don't I don't consider what we have today liberalism. Liberalism had its full at its, its flaws, but it was in favor of vigorous debate. It was in fa- in favor of free inquiry. What what we have now is something that, that approaches a religion, mm-hmm. uh, a revealed religion. Uh, t- to be woke is to, to be to be given the, the sacred truths, well, but they're not not sacred in, in 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 the traditional sense. Let's let's say secular truths uh, that that have to have to be respected, have to have to be bowed before.
0: And, and certainly no respect for open debate or, or freedom of speech even. You know, I think it's it's true that the, the kind of woke uh, progressivism we're seeing today gets angriest in some ways at people who would still regard themselves as traditional liberals in that more old-fashioned sense of believing in the free exchange of ideas. Unfortunately,
1: those kind of liberals are dying off.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, you you might have noticed recently the the death of Stanley Crouch, right? Uh, Stanley Crouch was was somebody who was close to City Journal. You know, used to come to our events. A really dynamic figure, great uh, great writer on jazz music, and uh, you know, uh, uh, an enormous personality. Uh,
1: and yes, I I would agree I would agree with all of that, and 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 someone not afraid uh, to, to criticize as uh, fellow African-Americans, if he, if he thought they were speaking nonsense. And mm-hmm. so he, he famously went after uh, Harvard law professor, Derek Bell, who's the founder of critical race theory, which harkens back to this, the, the assumptions of the 60s, the problems of African-Americans are all, are all really just the problems of, of whites. The, the the upshot of this is, is going to be greater separatism. I, I don't mean just black separatism, I mean... Whites will will say nothing, but
0: just keep their distance. Well, we, we could certainly see uh, that development uh, um, beginning over again over the last several years, and uh, and gaining intensity in this very difficult twenty twenty. Um, a final question, Fred, would be sure. about twenty twenty and and about uh, New York City, where City Journal is located, where you've been you know, a longtime New Yorker. I think it's fair to say that New York was was one of the hardest hit places in the world, certainly one of the hardest hit cities uh, by the pandemic and then the subsequent lockdowns and urban unrest. And now for the first time in a long time, this preceded the pandemic, the city is starting to see uh, rising uh, violent crime rates. How do you see the near-term future of New York? We have a mayoral uh, election uh, on the horizon. What's the city going to look like uh, in two years? Uh,
1: I'm I'm, I'm not sure, but here's what we can say with some certainty. That New York's strength, its density, uh, was turned against it by the pandemic. People didn't want to be on subways. They didn't want to be in elevators. And so Midtown is, is, is a ghost town. Mm-hmm. Uh, even now, it, you know, there's the some slight rise in, in bus ridership. Uh, uh, actually, more than a slight ride in bus ridership. Uh, and, and, but only a minuscule ride in subway ridership. Uh, and, and the trains, the commuter trains that come into New York are running at about 20% of capacity. So the, the joke it used to be, you know, why do executives like to come into Midtown? Answer to go to lunch, um, yeah, yeah. place where you socialize over great food. There were marvelous restaurants. All those restaurants are closed down. Broadway is closed down. There's the 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 chances of Broadway reopening anytime soon are are, are slim. So it it it's, it's hard to see uh, what, what what's gonna what's gonna happen in a positive light.
0: Um, it's hard to see the situation improving dramatically until we are on the other side of the pandemic yes um you know you do go to the outlying suburbs of new york and go to the mta stations drive by them and the uh, parking lots remain empty yes uh so the commuting population is working remotely now um and they haven't come back into the city for those lunches and for those events and and a lot of their companies are looking at the situation we're able to function with everybody working out of the office. So there's going to come a moment where there's going to be a pretty significant impact, I think, on commercial real estate. Uh, you know, so the quicker the quicker we we can find ourselves victorious in this battle against the pandemic, the better for a place like New York, uh, which is, as you describe, a very dense city that much of its energy is based on people just coming together. And that's been turned against it. You're, you're absolutely right. Uh, what about, you know, the political dynamic, though, in the city? Do you, do you think uh, post-Blasio we're going to see uh, uh, greater concern again for, for the crime problem? Um, or has the city moved in a more progressive direction?
1: Well, I, I don't know. What, you know, progressive do, doesn't mean what it once did. It, right. Because these, these, I wrote a piece actually for City Journal entitled uh, "Progressives Without Progress." The rhetoric about uh, wokeism has very little to do with, with what we would tr- traditionally thought of as as progress. It has to do it has to do with power. The, the woke elite is is aligned in New York with the African American poor and Puerto Rican poor. Uh, Puerto Ricans who left New York have done fairly well. Puerto Ricans who stayed here have s- s- sunk into the slough of of, of long term poverty. So, what's going to happen here, here? Our current mayor is, couldn't be more dysfunctional. Uh, he's he's high most of the time. <laughs> uh, I I don't say this is sar- sarcastically. I, I I just I happen to know uh, people he deals with. And they they say this quite openly that he that he's he comes into their their shops, high, he's smoking constantly smoking weed. The governor uh, was responsible for the, for the death of probably it's hard hard to say what the numbers are somewhere between six and ten
0: thousand. Cuomo, because of the the requirement to send elderly people who had gotten sick from COVID who weren't uh, in immediate risk of death back into nursing homes, right? That this is now widely seen as, as having been one of the big drivers of the early uh, death rates uh, in America, which thankfully have flattened out. You know, things, things are not that bad. But that original period, there were a lot of unnecessary deaths because of that, for sure. No question. And, and Cuomo has a book out this week
1: uh, describing his heroic triumphs or he, he, he just wants, thinks he can lie his way through this, and he, he probably can. He's not been held to account. The, the, the networks uh, laud him. I have friends who, who think, think he's a great governor. When we get to this question of the nursing homes, the ones who are more rational say, yes, he made a mistake, but, you know, no big deal. And if, if you're cynical... Uh, you'd 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 think that you think that Obama's tilt toward eugenics uh, was coming to the fore uh, under Cuomo.
0: It is a um, a situation and a um, a political scene that's uh, that's frustrating. But uh, I think anybody would benefit for understanding the trend trend lines of America. Um, America's politics uh, by reading this marvelous book, The Crisis of Liberalism. Um, I want to thank you, Fred, very much for stopping by to discuss the book. Again, it's called The Crisis of Liberalism, Prelude to Trump. It's just out from Telos Press, and we're very glad the portions of the book were born in City Journal uh, over over the last uh, you know, 10, 15 years. The listeners can get a copy of the book, as I had mentioned earlier, on Amazon and at other booksellers, and we will provide a link to it in the description. We would also love to hear your comments about today's episode on Twitter, at City Journal. And lastly, if you like our show and want to hear more, please leave ratings and reviews on iTunes. So thanks very much for listening, and thanks, Fred, again for joining us. Thanks for having me.